Support for Paradox comes from the Timothy Center, a place for adolescent and family healing. The Timothy Center is a marriage and family counseling facility in Austin, Texas, offering distance consultations for those that live outside the Austin area. If your family is struggling and you'd like to consult with Jimmy, Josh, or one of their trained professionals, visit them at timothycenter.com. Jesus is not a Democrat, certainly not a Republican, but not a Democrat either. Transcends both political parties, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that would come, when he returns, he will pass his word on both parties and say, mm-hmm. you both failed me to some degree. So uh, how to bridge the gap? I don't know. I just try to be biblical. Recording live from Austin, Texas, a conversation about marriage and family that guys won't want to turn off. Dr. Jimmy Myers and Dr. Josh Myers are a paradox. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Paradox. I'm Jimmy. And I'm Josh. And we are extraordinarily excited to have with us today Dr. Tony Campolo. Dr. Polo, thank you for being here. Good to be your guest and to talk to you. And I've never actually seen, outside of our interview with Gary Chapman, I have not seen Jimmy this excited about a guest. Well, I've I've stalked this man (laughs) since the 80s. Hopefully by just reading his books. At at my age, all my stalkers are on walkers, you know, so I'm glad to get some younger guy. (laughs) There you go. Jimmy actually does have a sprained ankle right now, (laughs) so he is technically in a walker. Um, But yeah, I was going to youth worker conventions. I'm telling you, one... Up until the day I actually picked you up at the airport when you came and spoke at our church, um, my biggest thrill was, uh, I think it was in Chicago at the Youth Specialties Convention, you got on the airport shuttle and sat next to me. I must have told so many people that. (laughs) I sat today where Tony sat. I can hear you singing it. (laughs) I like that. Uh, Listen, for those of you that do not know, Uh, Dr. Campolo is a professor emeritus at Eastern College. Uh, He is the founder and the president of University to the major leagues, man. Eastern University. Oh, is it really? Yes, and we've got several graduate schools. Uh, We've got a seminary. We got a graduate school in microeconomic development, and uh, we got a PhD program in uh, organizational management, and. we get about here in Eastern. We have about three thousand students, but half of them are graduate students. So wow. uh, that university thing, uh, you graduate program in education, graduate program in just about everything you can imagine. So there you go. So how long is it bef- before they actually name it Campolo University? <laughs> is that in the works? Oh, I hope that never happens. I hope that never happens. <laughs> Okay. Get the thing going here. You got some good questions. I know. I can feel it in my veins. <laughs> the Red Letter Christians is probably one of the most um, influential books of your 35 uh, that you have written. Um, if you could, you know, for those of you that haven't read it, could you explain Red Letter Christians and then your latest book, Red Letter Revolution? Yes. Uh, let me uh, preface it by saying uh, that uh, words lose their original meaning. For instance, uh, uh, the word fundamentalist, good word. It referred to people who believed in the fundamentals of the Christian faith as outlined in the Apostles' Creed. Good word. However, the word fundamentalist came to be associated with a kind of judgmental pietism, a holier-than-thou attitude, 
a kind of anti-intellectual orientation uh, to academia, uh, a kind of uh, a kind of judgmentalism towards anybody that didn't believe as exactly as they believed. The word fundamentalist uh, and the became uh, pejorative. There's mm-hmm. a big word, pejorative. There you go. Yeah. Uh, the, so, you know, in about the early 1950s, Billy Graham and Carl Henry got together and started using a new word, and the word was evangelical. And the word evangelical is a wonderful word. When it comes to what I believe, I fall into the evangelical camp. I believe in the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed. I believe that the scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit and are an infallible guide for faith and practice. I believe that salvation comes by having a personal transforming relationship with the resurrected Christ who died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. You say, wow, that's what evangelicals believe. Exactly. It's when they started believing other things that the problem emerged. Evangelicals are thought and to be people who believe that uh, gay people... Uh, are to be looked down upon. Uh, they have a very negative attitude toward when you, with the Pew Foundation, uh, when asked uh, the general public in a survey, uh, what is your impression of evangelicals? The first word that came to their mind is that these people are homophobic. Now that they have so closely identified with uh, uh, Donald Trump, as close to 80% of all evangelicals are with Donald Trump, uh, they, uh, they take on uh, the xenophobic. Uh, fears of Donald Trump, namely that uh, we are afraid of we're afraid of immigrants. We're afraid of these people. We're afraid of Muslims. We're we're anti we're anti Muslim. We're we're anti gay. We're and we raise questions about women. Uh, you know when when uh, when a candidate uh, for the presidency has very derogatory things to say about women. I think that those who believe the right things, which I believe evangelicals believe theologically need to say, hey, we have to distance ourselves from this guy. Now, the reason why they're so supportive of Trump as opposed to Hillary Clinton is because uh, uh, Trump is a, a pro-choice on the abortion issue, and he's opposed to gay marriage. And evangelicals rally to those uh, concepts, even though they may find themselves opposed to other things about Donald Trump. But they need to, uh, they need to clarify who they are because right now it doesn't work very well. And so some of us who said, you know, this word, uh, evangelical, has so much negative baggage that maybe we need a new title for ourselves. Uh, We tried to go back and tell the secular world in which we live uh, that evangelicals uh, are all over the place when it comes to social issues, while we're together on Christ's salvation, and while we're together in, uh, in the, about Scripture, and, and while we're together on the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed, we're all over the place uh, when it comes to politics. Uh, and, uh, but it hasn't been able to click. It hasn't been able to catch on. So some of us said, we need a new word. And we came up with the name Red Letter Christians referring to the red letters in many of the old Bibles and, yea, in many of the new Bibles. Those red letters in those Bibles uh, highlight the teachings of Jesus. And we say what we really need is a generation of Christians who not only believe the right stuff, or not only orthodox, but are into orthopraxis, that is doing what Jesus calls us to do. 
Jesus uh, prescribed a radical, and let me use this word strongly, counter-cultural lifestyle. You can't read the Sermon on the Mount and realize without realizing this is countercultural. Uh, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he probably meant we shouldn't kill them. That's a fair statement. When he said, blessed are the merciful, I think that precludes uh, embracing capital punishment. Uh, and yet when I talk to so many people who call themselves evangelicals, they do embrace capital punishment. They do embrace uh, war. And my attitude is, that's their right. And I'm not going to make a judgment about them. What I am going to say is I don't want to be identified with anybody that's with with a movement that, for the most part, supports capital punishment and, in fact, uh, doesn't raise enough questions about war. So, uh, you know, that's where we go. So we came up with this new name, and we say it's time to look at the radical teachings of Jesus, who calls us not only to be merciful, to love our enemies, to overcome evil with good. What an interesting thing to say especially in light of dealing with ISIS? Are we ready to overcome the evil with good? Are we ready to feed our enemies when they're hungry, clothe them when they're naked, take care of them when they're sick? Are we ready to do these things? Are we ready to take the wealth that we have and give it to the poor? Because that's what Jesus calls us to do in the 10th chapter of Mark. Well, I've ran it long enough. That's who red Christians are. <laughs> in a nutshell, that's what red Christians are. Um now, you were a spiritual advisor with Bill Clinton when he was in office. Um, you've, you know, uh, you're a Democrat coming things from a more liberal point of view. What's, what's amazing to me is you can take someone like me, who's probably just a little to the right of Attila the Hun, and yet am enthralled by what you have to say and how you say it. How have you been able to bridge that gap and speak to both worlds? Well, I don't know that I'm doing it so well as of late, but uh, <laughs> what I would have to say is that, uh, and that's because the divide is becoming greater and greater mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, but um, I, I never really said uh, I'm going to be liberal politically, I, and therefore I'm, I'm, I'm going to articulate uh, the policies of the Democratic Party. Jesus is not a Democrat, certainly not a Republican, but not a Democrat either. Transcends both political parties, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that would come, when he returns, he will pass his word on both parties and say, mm -hmm. you both failed me to some degree. So uh, how to bridge the gap? I don't know. I just try to be biblical. That's a strong statement. Mm -hmm. When I mention opposition uh, to, uh, to war, uh, you know— I take seriously the scripture. When your enemy hungers, says the book of Romans, feed him. If he's naked, clothe him. If he's sick, minister to him. And I ask myself, and you should ask yourself, and your listeners should ask themselves this question. What, what, what if we took the money we spent on the war in Iraq? And just for the record, let me spell out what that is. For 10 years, the U.S. citizens, through their tax dollars, paid $250,000 a minute. Let me repeat that. We spent $250,000 a minute on, on the war in Iraq. For 10 years that went on. Can you imagine that? What if we had taken even half of that money and fed our enemy, clothed those who were sick, built hospitals? You know what? Hamas won the hearts and minds of so many people in Lebanon 
because while we were uh, we were at war, uh, they were building hospitals, they were setting up schools, they were doing the humanitarian things. Uh, what we do is just arm people to fight. Uh, we need to go in the name of Jesus and give to people what Jesus would give, food when they're hungry, clothing when they're naked, medicine when they're sick. We need to deliver those who are in prison. We must do what the Bible says. By quoting scripture, I think I do bridge a gap. Uh, when I speak, uh, evangelicals who take the Bible very seriously say, wait a minute, I don't like what he's saying, but I've got to admit, he did quote scripture, and I think he interpreted it. Correctly, yeah. Yeah, so there you go. And a lot of uh, believers can move into kind of the just war debate when it when it comes to what we should believe about uh, wartime decisions. Kind of tell us what you uh, what your take is uh, regarding just war. Well, let me just say I'm I'm very troubled when I when I say something negative about just war. I mean, when you look at World War II and what the Nazis were doing to the Jewish people, uh, it becomes hard to critique that and say we shouldn't have done it. Uh, my, my point would be, however, that I am a troubled, extremely troubled, uh, nonviolent resistor. I say nonviolent resistance rather than pacifism because uh, I'm not passive. I'm nonviolent in my resistance to evil. And and uh, I'm a nonviolent person in that sense. Ha- having said that, I have—I said I was troubled. I was upset, and I'm troubled, and I'm upset because the privilege to say what I just said is mine because hundreds of thousands of men and women, brave men and women, fought on battlefields and defended my right to have the convictions that I just articulated. There are some countries of the world where I, if I had said that, which stands opposed to the general policies of the nation, I would be put in prison and even put to death. And uh, I have this right because certain people went to the battlefield and, uh, and defended my right. So while I hold to these convictions, I do so with troubled heart and mind because I sense the ambivalence. I'm grateful for what they did, on the other hand, I cannot compromise what I believe. Yeah. Just a few minutes ago, you spoke to believers can go so quickly just to be anti-everything. Um, so when it comes to indivi- individuals on the other end of the political spectrum or uh, gender issues, sexuality issues, how can believers become less anti um, and more countercultural like Jesus was? Well, I said earlier in this interview that... Uh, The Bible is responsible for uh, many of the beliefs that I hold. Uh, Let me just, well, I hope for all the beliefs that I hold. (laughs) Although I I question my own interpretation of Scripture, whenever I make a controversial statement, and I do make them often, I often, if not always, uh, preface it with this phrase, uh, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. Too many uh, Christians, when they speak on controversial social and political issues, uh, act as though my way is Yahweh. Uh, the, the truth is uh, that we try, we, to use the words of Scripture from the book of Philippians, I'm working out the implications of my salvation with fear and trembling. I have to say that. 
but let's take the women's issue. Um, I became a, an ardent supporter of much of the feminist movement uh, because uh, I support a lot of the stuff that they're into. There are those who say, we don't believe that women ought to be in ministry. And I say, well, go to the 16th chapter of Romans. There is a specific reference in all the translations except the first edition of the NIV. They changed it later because they got so much static over it. There's reference to a woman named uh, Julia, uh, who, a woman who is listed by Paul as a fellow apostle. Iodia and Syntyche uh, are the leaders of the church at Philippi. It says in, in the book of uh, Acts, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, uh, both the young men and the young women prophesied, and that's what preaching is. Uh, so young men and young women were preaching, and that was evidence that the Holy Spirit had come upon the church. And so we find in Galatians these words, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, here it comes, male nor female. Uh, in the Hebrew temple, the ancient temple, uh, women were not allowed into the Holy of Holies. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, it says this, that that partition uh, that separated the men from the women was torn down, and now uh, there is equal status. So I begin to see equal status for females and the rights of women to speak. I find that in the Bible. Now, there are people who come up with other verses, and so we can discuss back and forth, and the discussion can be quite creative as long as neither of us say, my interpretation is the absolute interpretation. We have to say, this is what I believe, but I'm ready to listen to you. So many Christians don't have the ability to listen to anybody who has a point of view that's contrary to their own. Tell you one more that we want to ask you real quick, and then we'll let you go. Uh, you were involved in getting young people on the mission field, uh, especially working with Haiti. I mean, you were doing Haiti way before... Haiti became the cause du jour. Um, and yet, you know, now we're seeing in, in books like Toxic Christianity or Toxic Charity, you know, have addressed maybe how we in the past have gotten our mission efforts. Maybe our, our goals were correct, but our methods might have been misplaced. Can you speak to how you your view of, of mission work uh, overseas and with the poor has changed over time? Uh, yes, I can. And that representation is highly highlighted here at Eastern, where I've been for so many years as a professor of sociology. Uh, the first wave of missions was that people went to other countries and there called people to surrender their lives to Christ. And those who responded to that invitation were molded together and churches were planted. The earliest form of mission work was to convert people to Christ and to, in fact, well, to lead people into a conversion with Christ because it's the Holy Spirit that does the converting. We only do the preaching. But to preach the gospel and call people into, uh, into uh, church life. But there came a point in which we realized that indigenous people, the people of the nation uh, there, where we had gone with the gospel story, that there were Christians in that nation that could preach the gospel without a foreign accent, who could, in fact, interpret the scriptures in ways that were incredibly relevant to the people of their own society. And so missionaries moved into stage number two, and we provided teachers and doctors 
and uh, and we agriculturalists, we came alongside of the church and say, we're going to come with a social expertise uh, that will undergird what you're doing as a church, that will support what you're, we'll build hospitals, uh, we'll establish clinics, we'll establish schools, uh, educational missionaries. And that was great. And then we started to uh, go into education. Uh, my own missionary organization, the Evangelical University, the Evangelical Association for the Promotion of Education, was uh, strong in supporting an effort to establish the National Evangelical University of the Dominican Republic, which now has 15,000 students. You say, why did you bring that up? Well, because those universities in those countries are turning out doctors and teachers and agronomists and nurses. And, you know, when we, we realize that, we, we should not be trying to displace these indigenous doctors. I mean, it's so easy uh, for us to go in there and take jobs away from indigenous people. So we move, we said, well, we were helping the, these churches by, by all this other kind of stuff. But now the stage number four, uh, and stage number four, and this is very important because it's what Eastern is doing very well right now. We're training a generation of missionaries to go to developing countries and to American inner city situations. Because let me tell you, you don't have to go to the third world to go to the third world. You'll find the third world in many American cities and start small businesses and cottage industries out of the church. Start little businesses that in people in the neighborhood can own and run themselves. Then the people who are running these businesses will be earning enough money to pay for their own doctors, their own teachers, their own agriculturalists, their own nurses. So many of the people who are educated in developing countries, the first thing they want to do after they get their degree is get out of the country, come to a place like the United States, because the people in their own country cannot pay for their services. Well, we want to start small businesses and cottage industries out of churches so that the people who are educated to do uh, incredible service for their own people can get paid to do so that there'll be enough money to support them in what they're doing. So the third stage, fourth stage of missions that we're talking about is this one, to in fact equip indigenous people to start small businesses and cottage industries that they can own and run themselves. That phrase is very important. They must own the businesses. They must, in fact, be the people who control the system. Campolo, thank you so much for being here. Good to be your guest. Take care now. So if you want more information about Dr. Campolo, um, and in fact, checking out his Evangelical Association for the Promotion of Education, find out more about him at TonyCampolo.org. You can also find more about the Red Letter Christian Movement. It's Red Letter Christians with an S, dot org. And then Twitter and Facebook are both just Tony Campolo. And I really now do we begin. hope that some of us can listen to what he's saying. And not be extremely offended. Yes, because there's a guy who is a liberal Democrat by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and yet, you cannot not listen to what he has to say. Yeah, the first word that came to my mind in just listening to him was gravitas. He just had an authority. Didn't he? 
uh, that you just wanted to kind of pull up a chair and listen to him. I don't necessarily know where to begin because there are many thoughts. Uh, one of the first was um, approaching what he says scripturally, politically, with the mindset, I might be wrong, mm-hmm. that my interpretation of things might not be the yes. interpretation of yes. things. My mind first went to marriage. We approach marriage as my interpretation is the mm-hmm. interpretation to end all interpretations. Mm-hmm. No one has a monopoly on truth. Um, we have to get to a place where we're... Jesus had a monopoly on truth. Jesus. And he Josh. is the reason for the season. Yes, he is. Um, we have to get to a place in our heart and in our head where we not only can sit and listen to Tony Campolo, but we can sit and listen to our spouses, to our children, um, and and be able to empathize with their perspective. I think sometimes we really fall victim to, well, we talk about, well, I'm in a Christian bubble or you know whatever. We, we do insulate ourselves so that we're only listening to Rush Limbaugh on the radio. We're only listening to Sean Hannity you know, on the tele. And so we never allow in any alternative voice. And of course, that's not true of all of us, but I mean, there are some Christians who really, you know, that are very much on the far right and they just won't hear. Such as yourself. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, And it's important to listen. There were things that I still took issue with, but because I consider this guy all but walking in the steps of Jesus. I wasn't going to bring it up with him. Uh, You know, the whole thing of, you know, I'm going to have a nonviolent response to evil. That sounds good until a rapist is, is trying to attack your child. Then I'm saying, Tony, I'm thinking my, you might have a more violent approach to evil at that point. Yeah. And I I think he would also say himself, I might too. Exactly. Cause he, he said, yeah, the nonviolent resistance but I am uncomfortable saying that. Yeah. And I, I, I get a lot of, I think I get a lot of my political views from Dr. Campolo as well. And his, I know his latest book is Red Letter Revolution, but his Red Letter Christian book takes kind of political hot button issues and he covers them one by one. And he has so many incredible things to say. But that non, I've, I've said for years, the Christian in me says overcome evil with good. I want to put a blanket around ISIS mm-hmm. and cover them from the cold. The American in me says, thank God there are other people doing that and fighting them. You know, it's it's this, for me, I really struggle with this dichotomous viewpoint in my head of, as a Christian, I don't know what we should do. And as American, go throw bombs on them. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I... I, I so I, I would agree. I, I don't, I, you know, you don't see Christ saying, let's go bomb people. Um, but I say that, and I'm very uncomfortable saying that mm-hmm. to his point because yeah. of the men and women, the brave men and yeah. women that have died for my right to say that. I remember when he said um, the years ago, uh, he came out with sort of that uh, nonviolent. Uh, Resistance was his word. Yeah. And he just said, because, you know, because. If I'm supposed to do as Jesus would do, Jesus would not be in the B-52 and he wouldn't pull the lever to carpet bomb Southeast Asia, men, women, and children. And I was sitting there going, uh, uh, okay, all right, okay. (laughs) I can't disagree with that. (laughs) That's that's kind of where Campolo is. I mean, he has not really changed. He's definitely molded the way I see things. Again, I'm still very much, very much conservative, but I appreciate his approach. And I hope that I would view 
other just like, you know, and I hold to my views with a troubled heart, too, because I see the other point that's mm-hmm. trying to be made and it's valid. Yeah. Good. stuff. Um, yeah. Good stuff. I mean, I could go on, um, but I just want to give you a pop quiz, Jimbo. Do you know how to define pejorative? Bad. Bad. What does that mean? It's a it's, it's intent- a negative word. Yeah. yeah. What does it mean, though? Uh, I had to Google it. Bad. What does that mean? Give it, give it a context. Opposite of good. <laughs> no, no. Give, use pejorative in a word. Or in a uh, I did not want to take a pejorative stance on this topic. Which would mean what? Bad. <laughs> I don't want to take a bad stance on this yes, topic? Yes, that's what I would say. This is coming off the rails. It means expressing <laughs> disapproval. See? Bad. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> it's not exactly what you're saying. Honey, when you when you get a PhD, you never let them see you sweat. <laughs> Bad. It means good, if it's a positive word. Uh, okay, so we're going to have links to um, Webster's.com uh, for the definition of pejorative. Uh, we'll also have links to any of the books or topics that we talked about. Just War is an interesting one if you just have several and hours to And a letter to, to a young evangelical. Yeah, oh, such book. a great book. Uh, his, his letters to a young evangelical. Um, so we'll have um, links to all those. Check our show notes out at paradoxpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's Doc's Podcast. You can find me, Josh, on those three platforms. It's Doc Josh Myers. Uh, Dr. Jimmy Myers on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at jmyersfam. Listen, everybody, do not be pejorative. (laughs) Take care. Paradox is produced by Billy Lee Myers Jr. and researched by Dr. Jimmy and Dr. Josh Myers. Special thanks to Life Austin Church in Austin, Texas, and our Paradox evangelist, Julie Lyles Carr. To find out more about the Paradox and to sign up for email updates, go to our website, paradoxpodcast.com. Next time on Paradox. You've got 100 people a day dying just because they can't get access to clean water. You have moms that will tell you, and I hear this not just a few, but dozens of times on every trip. You know, I bore six and three are living, meaning I had six children and only three of them are still alive. And they died mostly, primarily because of waterborne disease.